Father, we thank you that you have um, communicated yourself to us through this, your word. We thank you that you have communicated yourself uh, to the world through the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that your spirit continues to communicate uh, to us even now. And we pray that that would happen as we read your word, as we think about the Logos, the word made flesh, Christ. Um, direct our hearts and our attention to you and help us to see Jesus uh, more clearly, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are, we're in John's gospel, and we've been here for the whole, all of the fall, and John is a, is a very interesting book because if you're, if you're like just getting acquainted with Christianity, oftentimes you'll be encouraged to read John's gospel. It's kind of like the starting point. It's where you begin. And, and so in that sense, it's, it's a pretty accessible, it's pretty simple book to read, a good ex- explanation of Christ and his work on this earth. But at the same time, it is incredibly profound and complex. And John is communicating like robust philosophical claims through this writing. And here's another thing that's interesting. If you're in seminary and you're studying like biblical Greek, one of the first things they'll have you translate, because it's the easiest, it's like the most simple Greek to read, is John's writing. Maybe his letters, maybe the gospel. And it's, it's so interesting that God takes the, the, the Greek writer who kind of maybe like has the most simple Greek and communicates these mind-blowing philosophical truths through the simplicity of the language, but he does. And I've found, I've found this to be um, a very challenging thing to preach, actually, to, to kind of get my mind around these passages of Scripture. And here, in our passage this morning, that is certainly the case. Jesus is communicating here, and John, through the Holy Spirit, is communicating powerful truths uh, in a very simple way, and we're going to see that this morning. But first, a, a recap of where we've been. Jesus is in his final hours with the disciples before his, his ordeal, his, his arrest, his trial, his death. And so he's communicating to his disciples some very important things. It's, it's considered the farewell discourse. He was in an upper room, and I believe at the end of chapter 14, they leave the upper room because he says, come, come, let us go from here, and they make their way to the garden of Gethsemane, and that's where they are now, and he's been, he's been speaking uh, all of these encouraging truths to them, and here again, he gets into the topic of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be with the topic of the Holy Spirit for at least two weeks uh, in, the, in, the coming, in the coming weeks, uh, but this morning, I want us to see that the Holy Spirit, what, what John calls the paraclete, and that word literally means one who is called alongside. So the, the translators, the helper, the advocate, the, the, the comforter is one translation. The Holy Spirit gets us to the heart of the matter. That's what we're going to see this morning. The Holy Spirit gets us to the heart of the matter. And I want us to see two things uh, this morning as we consider that. The first is how the Holy Spirit gets us to the heart of the matter. And then the second is how the Holy Spirit gets us beyond the heart of the matter. So how the Holy Spirit gets us to the heart of the matter, how the Holy Spirit gets us beyond the heart of the matter. That's what we're going to consider um, this morning. 
So let's just jump right in. Verse, verse 4, the beginning of your passage there, printed in your order of worship. Verse 4b, Jesus says, of chapter 16, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Right? And remember, he's referring to the things we talked about last week. Remember last week's sermon? The world will hate you. Sobering words. That's what Jesus said. The world will hate, just as it hated me. It will hate you. They will kick you out of synagogues. They will kill you, he says. And he says, I do not say these things from the beginning because I was with you. But now that I'm leaving you, you're ready to bear this news. Right? There's been a lot of difficulty for the disciples to take in. The focus was, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, on who Jesus was. And now Jesus is, is explaining in this farewell discourse what he came to do, which involves a departure. It involves Jesus' departure, which involves a new advent. Remember, the word advent simply means coming. What we're doing in this, these Sundays leading up to Christmas is we're anticipating the coming of Christ. Well, now Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm leaving But there's a new advent coming. There's the coming of the Holy Spirit. Look at at, uh, verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where you are going. The disciples, disciples, it's as though they're so taken by the fact that Jesus is leaving, they're thinking only in terms of what it means for them. But they haven't even wondered, well, what does it mean for, where is Jesus, what does it mean for Jesus that he's going? And and Jesus is saying, look, I'm leaving for an incredible work. My travel itinerary would blow your minds. I am leaving to go into death itself, and I will come back from the dead. I will be raised to new life here on earth, and then I will ascend to the throne of heaven, to the right hand of God. I will go from, from the death to the earth to heaven. And because of my travel itinerary, the dust of earth will be on the throne of heaven. It's remarkable. Keep reading, verse 6. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. It's understandable that there's sorrow because the disciples have been experiencing the life that we were all made to experience. Life with God. Life with their creator. They've experienced it for three years. Think of a problem. Jesus can solve it. Anything, cancer, sickness, hunger, volatile weather, demon possession. Jesus can solve all of these problems. He's relating, he's living with them. He calls them his friends. And now he's leaving. And so understandably, they're upset. So in the midst of this kind of sorrow, Jesus gives them the good news of the new advent of the Holy Spirit. And he puts it in stronger language than he's done so far. Look at verse 7. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Did you hear what Jesus said? He said, it's to your advantage that I leave. So that the spirit, so that the spirit comes down to you. Now it's easy for us to think, man, it would be so incredible 
if we had Jesus teaching us, if we got this clown off the stage here in the robe and had Jesus himself teaching us, that would be so much better than what we've got right now. But Jesus says, no, it's actually to your advantage. It's better that I leave because I send my spirit who is going to teach you. And, and really, the next couple of, the next few sermons, we're going to answer how exactly it is to our advantage, the disciples of Christ's advantage, that Jesus leaves so that the Holy Spirit will come. But this week, we're going to see this. That the, whole, the, the advantage of having the Holy Spirit now is that the Holy Spirit will take the world to the heart of the matter. The Holy Spirit will get us to the truth, the heart of the matter. The Holy Spirit, Jesus is about to say, is a truth teller. And we see this in verses 8 and following. Let's go ahead and read there. Verse 8. When the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 9. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, there, there's so much packed in these verses, these four verses. The la- last week, I, I, I quoted uh, David Wells, who says that the world thinks that um, sin is righteousness. This is kind of the definition of worldliness. It considers sin righteousness, and it considers righteousness sin. That's how the, that's, that's how the world thinks. And that's what Jesus is, is saying, that the world, um, that's what Jesus is saying the Spirit will do. It will help us to see what's wrong with the world, sin. It will help us see what's right with the world, righteousness, Christ, as we're going to see in a moment. Uh, Frederick Bruner puts it like this. What, what, what Christ is saying here in these verses is that the Spirit will show the world that it's wrong about what's wrong, that it's wrong about what's right, and that it's wrong about who won. That's what Jesus is saying here. The Spirit will tell the world that it's wrong about what's wrong, it's wrong about what's right, and it's wrong about who won. So we're going to kind of unpack that as we move, move forward. Now, the world, Jesus says, is wrong about what's wrong, and the Spirit's going to set you straight on that. Don't all peoples, every culture, every nation have some sort of theory about what's wrong with the world? About what's right with the world? About who wins? We all have a theory. The communists have a theory. Capitalists have a theory. Dictators have a theory about what's wrong, about what's right, and about who wins. A legitimately elected leader of the free world has an opinion on these matters. Your barber has an opinion on what's wrong with the world. Your eight-year-old neighbor next door has an opinion on what's wrong with the world. We all have an opinion on these things. And the Holy Spirit is going to get us to the truth about these matters. It's going to convict the world concerning sin and what's wrong with the world. And we see that in verse 9. He says, the Holy Spirit, verse 9 again, will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. You ask, what's wrong with the world? And you're going to get all kinds of answers and some really good answers. Alcohol abuse, drug abuse, poverty, pornography, failing schools, failing prisons, the breakdown of the family, 
the proliferation of screen technologies. That's what's, those things are what's wrong with the world. And all of those things are problematic, but they're not really the fundamental problem. The Holy Spirit, again, gets us to the heart of the matter. The Holy, so, so here's the question. What's really, truly wrong with the world? What's the problem? Here's what the Holy Spirit teaches. The most fundamental wrong is that the world doesn't believe in Jesus. That's it. That's what, that's what verse 9 says. They don't believe in me. It's that simple. Now, here's the thing. We Christians have, especially in America, for like 200 plus years, we've, we've kind of tended to reduce the gospel to fire insurance. And so we think about belief in Jesus primarily as it relates to the world to come, not to this present world. And so we, we, we almost, as it relates to just living life in the world, we kind of can easily think of belief in Jesus as being sort of optional to the good life. It matters for the next world, but doesn't matter so much for this world. And that's not the case at all. That's not John's claim at all. That's not what Jesus has been claiming here. John has been saying that Jesus is the bones of creation, that he is the one who holds it all together. He sustains it. That if we peel back the curtain of creation, what we're going to find is God. And not just an abstract force, power, but a personal God. God the Father. God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. It's a personal being. Not, it's not natural forces. It's not an abstract, like a Star Wars type of force that's holding everything together. It's a person. It's the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And here's the thing. The thing that is most basic to all human relationships, personal relationships with another. Think about it. Parent-child relationships, a coach-and-athlete relationship, a teacher-student relationship. If you're going into a business partnership with somebody, another person, what's essential for all of those relationships? Even a pet and and an owner, a dog and their owner. Essential to all of these relationships at the base is a trust, a belief. That's what holds the relationship together. It, It has to be there. And what John has been saying is that this this applies to the universe because the creator of the universe and the one holding it together is personal. So your relationship to it is dependent upon belief, trust in me who holds it all together. That's what Jesus is saying. This is a very like philosophical point that John is making but, and this is St. Augustine here talking, but Augustine believed that trust is fundamental to all of human life. That's how we make our way through the world. When you sat down in that pew, you didn't, think, you didn't rationally consider the trustworthiness of it. You didn't look at it. You, didn't, you just sat. You trusted. And we get through most of our life just in these relationships of trust. We just get in and we do th- things that we do. And there's an inherent trust that's informing all of that. And so it is with how we relate to the universe itself, to Christ. I, I, let me try to put it this way. I, I, imagine that you live in a home that you don't believe exists. You live in a home, but you don't believe that it exists. That would be kind of an odd thing. 
you would look at the weather forecast. We're supposed to, we could get rain in a couple of days, and you get very worried about that. How are you going to handle the rain because you don't, because you don't have a home? But you do. Or uh, you see that the high on Thursday is 17 degrees, and so you're beginning to get firewood, and you're making a fire on the carpet floor because you don't think that there's a house there, but there really is, and then the house could burn down after that, or you're not caring for the house. The, the point is this. You're living out of step with reality. If you are living in a house, but you don't believe yourself to be living in a house. And what Jesus, what Jesus is saying is that, and what the Holy Spirit convicts us, is that the world is in a state of insanity because it doesn't believe in Christ, who is the sacred canopy under which we all live our lives. They're all lived in Christ. It's in Christ that we live and move and have our being. And to deny Christ is to deny a fundamental fact. And the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us this. We don't get there on our own. The Holy Spirit teaches that Christ is fundamental and belief in him is paramount to our lives. It's the Holy Spirit that teaches, that sets the world straight about what's wrong. Because the world is wrong about what's wrong. And just, I mean, exhibit A for the world being wrong about what's wrong with the world. The very one in whom we should all ought to believe. What do we do with him? In a matter of hours, the world will crucify him. We don't want him. We reject him in the most strongest way. Putting him on a cross. That's what flesh and blood does. So the problem... Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will convict us of is that it's not alcoholism, it's not pervasive pornography or poverty or failing schools or the breakdown of the family or failing prisons. The problem is that we don't believe in Jesus. That's the fundamental primary first problem. And so the Holy Spirit will direct the world to the heart of the matter, to what's wrong with the world. But also, the Holy Spirit will direct the world to what's right about the world. Look at verse 10 again. The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness or what's right with the world. And then Jesus says, because I go to the Father. Now that's interesting, that language there. The Holy Spirit will tell us about what's right and good. And Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will direct the the world to what is right, which is to say, will direct the world to me. Righteousness personified. And why is that right? Well, look at what he says again. Because I go to the Father. Now, what does that mean? Because I go to the Father? Um, Well, of course, he's talking about the future because in in a matter of days, he he will be raised from the dead. And then about 50 days later, he will ascend to the right hand of the Father. He goes to the Father. But I think it's better to understand it this way. Jesus has been going to the Father his whole ministry. That's what he keeps saying. I go to the Father. I do the Father's will. I speak only what the Father says. He is living his life in constant reference to God the Father. He's doing the will of the Father. He is walking lockstep with the Father. And to see Jesus is to see the righteousness of God. To see Jesus is to see the image of the invisible God perfectly expressed. It is, in a word, to see righteousness. To see Christ is to see righteousness perfectly expressed. 
And the disciples are on the cusp of seeing the most powerful display of Christ's righteousness. His glory is what Jesus calls it. His death on a cross to atone for human sin, where we see God's love poured out for undeserving sinners. His grace to us. And then look here again at verse 10. He says, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness, what is right about the world, me, because I go to the Father, because I live my life in reference to God the Father. And then he says this, and you will see me no longer. They see Jesus with their own eyeballs now, but soon they will not. And here's the thing. His grand work, the work of Christ on the cross, is so counterintuitive. It's so unexpected. It's so seemingly disastrous that we need someone to teach us the truthfulness of it because we don't get there on our own. We need the Spirit to take us to that truth, to convict us of that truth. And the Holy Spirit has been doing since Jesus went up to heaven and sent the Spirit down. It has been convicting the church what the church cannot see. It's been convicting the world that Christ and Christ crucified is the way to life. Now, we, none of us have seen Jesus. We, we, we root our lives in that which we cannot see. None of us have seen Jesus. None of us saw the work, the crucifixion of Jesus. What has happened, what, what, what we're trusting is a witness of the Spirit through the apostles, through the scriptures, through the church, through ministers of the gospel, giving witness to the work of Christ. And so what is good and right in the world? Yes, like nurturing mothers are good and encouraging dads are right and puppies are good and coffee and newborns, and and roller coasters, and snow on Christmas. All of these things are wonderful things. But the fundamental primary right thing is Christ and Christ crucified. And the only way to get to that truth is by the Holy Spirit convicting your heart of those things. I like the way Frederick Bruner puts it. regarding verse 10. He says, verse 10 gives us the righteous twins. You see the twins? One is Jesus's work, primarily his work on the cross. That's righteousness personified, poured out, shown demonstrably. But the second thing, the, the, the second of the twins is this, faith that believes in what can't be seen, Christ. Our faith is, 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 is a righteous thing. It is good. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives us that. So the Holy Spirit gets the world to the heart of the matter. What's wrong with the world, right? Unbelief. That's what's wrong with unbelief in Christ. The Holy Spirit gets us to to, to what's right in the world, Christ and his ministry of love on the cross. And the Holy Spirit will tell the world who won. Look at verse 11. The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment, or we might say, who won? Because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, the song of the month, which we'll sing here in just a moment, Make a Way, one of my favorite lines in that song says this, Come promise since our Eden's end, child of the woman, come defend. Long have we felt the serpent's sting. Come, strike his head, 
and mercy bring. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a reference to Genesis 3.15, right? The first gospel, the, the promise where God speaks to the serpent and he says, coming out of the offspring of woman, of Eve, will come one, a male, who will crush the head of the serpent. And we've been waiting for that to come. And he finally came. Christ came. And he conquered the ruler of this world. He's one. Now, we need the Holy Spirit to teach us this because it's not always easy to see that he's one. Is it? There, there was a, there was an, Af- I heard an Afghan Christian, recently converted Afghani Christian who came to Christ through pretty wild supernatural means, did not have access to the scriptures. So the spirit kind of worked incredibly in his life. He came to faith and then he was thrown into prison for his faith and he was beaten and he was abused and he was harmed in prison. His family was being threatened and he began to wonder, is, was that real? Was what happened to me real? He began to, to doubt. Is, is Christ really judged? Has Christ won? That's his thought. And the Holy Spirit kept him clinging to those promises there in that prison. Kept uh, communicating, convicting his heart that Jesus won. That Jesus is enthroned. And I know some of you work in, in, in areas where you're constantly confronted with the worst kind of evil day after day after day, and it's unrelenting, and it's overwhelming, and it's easy to wonder, has Christ won? The Holy Spirit tells our hearts, he's won. He's defeated the ruler of this world. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit will affirm in our hearts that which we cannot see, that Christ is a victorious king, and that any evil that we see in the world is just the dying gasps of the evil one. So, to recap, our first, just our first point, how the Holy Spirit gets us to the heart of the matter. The Holy Spirit convicts us concerning what is wrong with the world, what is right with the world, and who won. But the Holy Spirit also gets us beyond the heart of the matter, and that's the second point. We see this in verses 12 through 15. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Like, I've gotten you to the heart of the matter, like the Holy Spirit will continue to do in your life, but there's more, and you can't bear them all now, which is why, verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The Holy Spirit will guide you there. He will get you to these truths that I'm not ready to share with you yet. He will get you beyond the heart of the matter. I've given you the heart. The Holy Spirit will help get you even beyond the heart of the matter. Remember we said this? But here, we said this last week. That um, how do we get to the finish line of the Christian life? Remember what it is? By going back to the starting line. That seems counterintuitive, but that's it. We're the starting line, Christ, that's where we began. That's how it all started. And the way to get to the finish line is by keeping coming back to the starting line, coming back to Christ year after year, week after week, hour after hour, as we turn our hearts and center them on Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus says here. Look at verse 13 again. For the Spirit, he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said 
that he that the Spirit will take what is mine and will declare it to you. The Holy Spirit will declare what is Christ's. He will speak the word of Christ to the world as Christ speaks the word of the Father to the world. The Holy Spirit will take the baton and continue it, not just in a little region, as Jesus did on his earthly ministry, but will continue it across the world and globe, and is continuing it to this day. The Holy Spirit will glorify Christ, he says in verse 14, and will take what is Christ and declare it to you. Now, this is interesting. I, this is a, kind of a side point, but I think it's worth mentioning. We are obsessed with personal expression, aren't we? We like to, to write our own vows. We, we kind of resist reading prayers and reading the things that we read in the liturgy here. It feels a little, it feels as though it lacks authenticity, doesn't it? To us, it does. But listen, did you see what the, the triune God is doing? They're speaking in one voice. They're only sharing what the others, the Father is sharing to the Son. And then the Spirit only speaks what the Son says. And, and it's all, they're all bound together in a single voice, is what Jesus is saying. That they are being, we might say, like liturgical in how they communicate to the world. They're on the same page. And everything that the Spirit teaches us is so foreign the heart of the matter is something we completely miss apart from the Spirit's work in our hearts. We need the Spirit to teach us, and the Spirit will. Jesus says it; he will. The Spirit will get us to the heart of the matter, and the Spirit will get us beyond the heart of the matter, but never outside of the heart of the matter. Did you hear that? The Holy Spirit will get us to the heart of the matter, and will take us beyond the heart of the matter, but never outside of it. Because what is the heart of the matter? The heart of the matter is Christ, who's in all and fills all and holds everything. To, you can't get out of the heart of the matter. Because Christ is the Logos, the one holding it all together. Now, here, here's the thing. I said a long time ago, before we started this church, I said, um, somebody asked, and I, I don't remember how it even came up, but I remember saying that, if you, that I would be kind of a one-trick pony in, in that I would just preach Christ and Christ crucified. That's kind of all I had to offer. And um, I remember thinking three years ago now, how, how am I going to, um, how am I going to do that every week? How am I going to, pre- I mean, th- let me say this first of all. I don't have a whole lot to say in general. If, if you're around me, you probably think I'm a big talker because I'm up here every week talking to you for 40 minutes. But I really don't. I, I don't have a whole lot to say. So how can a guy that doesn't really like to talk in the first place find himself in a job where one of his big piece of his job is to monologue for 40 minutes every week? How am I going to do that? And then, and then locate those monologues on one thing and one thing only? How does that happen? Well, I didn't, I didn't know how it happened three years ago. I was kind of, you know, was a little nervous about that. But every week, I've been praying, Spirit, teach me. Spirit, guide me. Spirit, help me. And every week, I believe, the Spirit just like drops these things, just sends these things to say. It's not to say these sermons are perfect, but it is to say that the Spirit works. And this is God's, this is Jesus' promise. He's saying it's better that I empower ministers, these little vessels of clay, to communicate these things to you than for me to communicate them myself. 
That's what Jesus is saying. It's to your advantage. And now, here's the thing. If you think little of Christ, maybe you're thinking, "I, I don't think. My life isn't centered on Christ. My heart, my meditation isn't centered on Christ. If you feel that way, pray for God's Spirit to center you. Ask for it. And the Spirit will grant it. I like the way Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. He, he prays this prayer for the church at Ephesus. And think about this. The church at Ephesus is, is being persecuted. Like they're facing real hard difficulty. And Paul doesn't pray that they would be comforted in their difficulty. As important as that is, his primary prayer is that they would have the Spirit of God center them on Christ. He says that the God the Father would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Jesus. If you feel that you're not centering your life in Christ, pray that God's Spirit would get you to the heart of the matter. Pray that God would, 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 would get you there. This convicting, centering, truth-telling work of the Holy Spirit is, is happening, and it's going into all the world. Right now, it appears, the Spirit of God is doing its greatest work in places like South America, Africa, East Asia, where people are converting to Christianity against all odds. Afghanistan, Iran, Iran. Oh, the Spirit of God is at work in these places. And it's, it's the disciples, these, these little confused, scared people that are right in the, in the dark of the night, right before Jesus, that are going to begin the work of taking the, the gospel to the world. And 300 years after they did their work, of uh, their missionary and gospel proclamation work, Athanasius had this to say. And I'm going to read it as, as we close. I think it's worth uh, hearing. Athanasius says this, he's writing from Egypt in in the 4th century. He says, Formerly, the whole inhabited world and every place were led astray by the worship of idols. And human beings regarded nothing else but idols as gods. Now, however, throughout the whole inhabited world, human beings are deserting the superstition of idols, and they're taking refuge in Christ, and they're worshiping Christ as God. And through him, they know the Father, of whom they had been ignorant. And what is amazing, Athanasius says, is this, that while there were thousands of diverse objects of worship, thousands of little truths, thousands of idols, thousands of like hearts of the matter, claims on what's wrong, what's right, who wins. That's what idols are. They're claiming what's wrong, claiming what's right, claiming who won. There are thousands of them all over the, all over the earth. And each place, each place had its own idol. That which was called a god by some had no power to pass over into the neighboring place to persuade those of the neighborhood to worship it. I mean, it was, this is what Athanasius says, it was barely worshipped among its own people, these little weak idols. Only Christ is worshipped by all as one and everywhere the same. And what the weakness of idols could not do, persuade even those dwelling nearby... Christ has done persuading not only those nearby, but the entire inhabited world to worship one and the same Lord through him, God, his father, and the Holy Spirit has done the work. The Holy Spirit, that's what the Holy Spirit does. It gets the world to the heart of the matter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your spirit. Come spirit 
Take us to the heart. Take us to Christ. Especially as we come and we commune with Christ, we pray that your spirit would help affirm the the truths of Christ to our heart. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.